As you're taking your seats, I want to invite you to open up your Bible. Bible you brought with you, the Bible that's there in the pew to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Or if you're really techie, you can open up your phone, go to the Bible app, the Version Bible app, tap more, the equal sign, events, and Grace Lutheran. It really doesn't take that many steps. And you'll open right up to the announcements I just gave and the scripture that we have this morning. As you're getting there, if you haven't been with us in a while, or maybe you're here for the first time, we're in the season of Lent, and during the season of Lent, through the vehicle of the story, which actually we're using all year long, this book, this 31-chapter narrative of the entire story of the Bible. Uh, we're doing this all year long, but during the season of Lent, the part of the story that we're in is Israel's search for a king to unite and lead them forward. Last Sunday, we looked at the first half of David's life, and if you did not get to hear or watch that sermon, I strongly encourage you to go back and to listen and to watch it, as I think it will very much complement where we're going to go today. Last week, just as a refresher, when he was only a teenager, David went from tending his father's flock as a shepherd to being anointed by his heavenly father to care for the people of Israel as their next king. David's fulfillment of this calling, however, did not come immediately or easily, because Saul, the first king of Israel, who through his repeated disobedience lost the Lord's endor endorsement and spiritual banking, Saul refused to yield the throne. But through it all, as we saw last week, in every circumstance, whether he faced a giant named Goliath or struggled to honor and serve the very man who was trying to kill him, David remained all in, patiently trusting in the Lord every step of the way. This morning as we pick up the story, Saul dies tragically. He dies tragically on the battlefield, and David is finally crowned king of Israel. When news of King Saul's death comes to David, David does not rejoice. He publicly leads the people in mourning and honoring Saul, this man who wanted him dead. David also graciously spares and provides for Saul's remaining family. To the very end, David models what loving one's enemy looks like. Jesus calls us to that, but really in David's life, we see a picture of what does it mean to love one's enemy. After this, the first two decades of David's monarchy are extraordinary. First two decades are extraordinary. His single-minded devotion to the Lord results in many accomplishments for Israel. Twelve tribes become one nation. The boundaries of the land are expand expanded, reaching 60,000 square miles. A neutral capital city is established with the capture of Jerusalem and the relocation there of the Ark of the Covenant. And as king over Israel, David builds for himself a majestic palace. But after he completes it, David suddenly has this sobering realization, again, out of that pursuit for God's heart. He realizes, here I am with this majestic palace while the Lord remains in a tent. The same tent that he had instructed the people to construct to carry his presence through the wilderness. And David realizes this is not right, so he sets out to build a temple for the Lord. But God, as always, has other plans. Through the prophet Nathan, the Lord defers the building of a house for himself and instead promises to build a house for David. And what in this part of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, what many people consider the pinnacle, one of the high points of the Old Testament, God gives a preview of coming attractions. The Lord's covenant with David is an advanced declaration of where this story is going because God says to David, one day someone from your line, a son of David, will be king of kings, leading my people in faithful obedience forever. 
This in many ways is, a, is a, as I say, a high point, not just in the Old Testament, but certainly one of the peaks in David's story. And ironically, it is right in this moment, at the peak of his story, that David then takes his eye off the ball. Success, it would seem, gets the better of David. He lets his guard down. The focus, his focus on the desire of God's heart quickly turns into an obsession, really, for satisfying the cravings of his own desire. For you see, long, not long after this, David's eye catches the sight of a beautiful woman named Bathsheba. And in that moment, having her heart, having her body, becomes David's new pursuit. Though she is a married woman, David is not hindered from his intent on possessing her. And soon enough, he sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. To cover everything up, David brings Bathsheba's husband Uriah prematurely home from combat. You see, David's plan is for Uriah's surprise homecoming to lead to a conjugal visit so that no one will suspect anything in terms of Bathsheba's pregnancy. But Uriah refuses to indulge this opportunity. As his fellow soldiers remain on the battlefield unable to return to their wives, Uriah will not be with his wife. David tries to get Uriah drunk to loosen him up a bit, but Uriah still will not budge. Frustrated and desperate, figuring all's fair in love and war, David sends Uriah back into combat with specific orders to have Uriah put on the front lines so that he will be killed, which he is. And this allows David to take Bathsheba as his own. One chapter, man, one chapter, just like that. David, the person after God's own heart. David, this courageous man of faith. David, the beloved songwriter of many of the Psalms, has violated half of the Ten Commandments. He's violated half of the Ten Commandments. Coveting, adultery, lying, murder. He violates half of the Ten Commandments and then proceeds to act like nothing ever happened. But David's dirty little secret is about to be exposed. It's about to be exposed by the God who always refuses to look the other way. If you have those Bibles open, let's hear that encounter in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb he bought. He raised it and grew up, it grew up with him, and his children. He shared, it shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for this lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all, Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why? 
did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week, we considered David's gradual rise as one anointed and called by the Lord. And and as we looked at that last week, and, and again, you really have to look at these two parts together. David endured and suffered and and went through many challenges, and yet he continued to thrive. And as we talked about this, he thrived because he, he taught us how to live with a heart for God. And yet here we turn the page. Here we are this week, this Sunday, and David falls into this deep, ugly moral collapse. Last week was the rise. This week was the fall. We, f- we reflect today on David's epic heart failure. How he fell. The losses that resulted. And most importantly, how he got back up. We're mindful of David's journey once again. We, we stop and we pause here because David's journey can and does speak into our own relationship with the Lord. So as we go forward, there's two focuses for us this morning. Once again, we're going to talk about how and why we fall, how and why our heart fails. And second, we're going to talk about how we can get, get, can get back up, how we can recover. So first, how and why did this happen? How and why do we fall? The basic answer, it's not that hard, is a three-letter word that most of us don't like. How and why do we fall? Sin. And if you don't remember the definition I gave you when we started this series back in Genesis, let me give it to you one more time. What sin? Sin happens every time we make the choice to deny, to reject, or rebel against God. Sin happens every time we make the choice to deny, to reject, or rebel against God. That's the basic definition of sin. But I want to try to further amplify it by way of what we talked about about David last week. Last week, we saw that out of God's initiative towards him, David was a man after God's own heart. And I unpack that for you. What that means is David pursued the heart of God. He sought after the Lord's thoughts, desires, and will in order to possess the fullness of God's heart, the fullness of God's character. David pursued in order to possess So based upon that insight, to help us amplify this understanding of what sin is, sin is whenever we pursue and seek to possess anything or anyone before the heart of God. And the operative word there, the key word is before. Because obviously in our lives, we will have other pursuits and possessions. Of course we will. We'll have other things we pursue and seek to possess. That's natural. The key word in this is before. Anything or anyone that we seek to pursue and possess before the heart of God. Because if if you think about it, our ability to discern if those other pursuits and possessions are good for us comes from making the Lord our first, our primary focus. God is the filter. God is the lens that helps us to discern whether or not those other pursuits and possessions are in fact good for us. 
So to bring this back to the text, why did David fall? Because David turned his primary focus away from pursuing God, what God desired for him, and instead he pursued what he wanted for himself. How did David fall? Because when David's pursuit shifted, so did his possession. When his pursuit shifted, so did his, his possession. Instead of possessing God's character, David became consumed by his own desire. And he got consumed by his own desire and it drived him not just to steal, not just to lie, not just to murder, but David being consumed by his own desire led him to treat everyone else around him as objects for his amusement, like Bathsheba, or objects for his disposal, like Uriah. My friends, when our first pursuit isn't for God, when our first pursuit isn't for God, we, like David, will be consumed by our desires. And this is important for us to hear because sometimes our pursuits and possessions aren't bad per se. In and of themselves, the things that we pursue and seek to possess aren't bad. The key is when our priority and reliance upon those objects or relationships is misplaced. When our priority on those objects or relationships is misplaced, that's what causes those very things to become bad for us, hindrances for us. Example, and this is often misquoted, the Bible does not say that money is evil. The Bible does not say this. Because money isn't inherently evil. Money by itself is neither good nor bad. What the Bible says is, love of money is the root of all evil. Because love of money before God and other people, love of money will overtake our devotion to God and our compassion towards others. There's a reason why Jesus summarizes the entirety of God's rules for life, his instructions of how the way the world's supposed to be. When Jesus summarizes it this way, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the flow. Love the Lord your God and then love your neighbor as yourself. That's the flow, here, then there. Get it backwards. Start here. Put your relationship with your family or your friends before your relationship with God and you will inevitably ask or demand your spouse, your child, your parent, your neighbor, you will ask them to take on a role and responsibility they can't handle. You will ask your spouse, your son, daughter, father, mother, friend to be God for you. You will ask them to love you, to save you, to complete and secure you in only a way that God can. But when we first pursue God, loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we can truly love our neighbors, anyone, as ourselves. How and why did David fall? Because he no longer made God his first pursuit. He gave up God's heart as his possession. And the thing we also see in David's story that is very, very sobering for us is sin doesn't just happen. Sin doesn't just happen. We don't suddenly stop pursuing God and seek to possess something or someone else. It's not like we just wake up one day and all of a sudden it just happened. I don't know. But even when we're kids, that's how we act. Like, it just, just happened. But David's story shows us sin doesn't just happen in our lives. You see, it's interesting. When we tell this story, we often say, well, David's problems began when he, when he you know, got busy with Bathsheba. But David's problems don't begin, in fact, when he takes Bathsheba for himself. David's problems begin way before that. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, the chapter before I just read to you, listen to the very first verse of that chapter and listen very carefully to what happens before everything else hits the fan. 
Here's the first verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11. It reads, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Were you listening carefully? In the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war, I'll skip to the last part, David remained in Jerusalem. You with me now? As king, and the author is making this very, very clear, David is supposed to be with his men, his army, engaged and leading them into battle. But David stays home. Translation, David isn't where he's supposed to be. Sin doesn't just happen. Sin starts the minute where we're not where we're supposed to be. David's loss of focus begins the minute he neglects his specific calling by God. Before he puts his eyes on Bathsheba, David takes his eye off his identity as the Lord's anointed. His specific responsibility as the leader of his people. And see what follows? Because David is not where he's supposed to be. David ends up at the wrong place at the wrong time. Right? You, if you remember this story, David's just wandering around on his roof at night. He's just wandering around on his roof at night and can't help but take a casual glance at a beautiful naked woman taking a bath. But as you know, it doesn't stop there. David makes in that moment yet another conscious decision to cross the line. And I'm not just talking when I say this conscious decision. I'm not just talking about David's choice to keep looking. Because what the text tells us, don't miss this, is that David sends someone, when he sees this woman, he sends someone to find out about her. And then the word comes back. And hear this, the person says, her name is Bathsheba, get this, she is the wife of Uriah. So if you're with me, David had the opportunity to turn away when he first saw this woman. Oops, okay, right? But then when David hears, this is Bathsheba's, Uriah's wife, this is another opportunity for David to turn around and leave. But as David chooses to redirect his attention towards Bathsheba, you know what happens. Just one lustful look turns into just one passionate night until news of an unexpected pregnancy. News of an unexpected pregnancy gives birth first to a cover-up and ultimately to David having an innocent man murdered. This didn't just happen. Sin never just happens in our lives. Temptation always comes. We see this in David's story. Temptation always comes. It's no coincidence when we're at our weakest. And we can be at our weakest in one of two places. We can be at our weakest by our own sense of success. And that's where, where temptation got David, right? He's weakened by his own sense of success. It's not a coincidence that David is at the peak of his story. And in that moment, he starts to buy his own press and forget about God. And he is weakened. He is vulnerable. He lets things go to his head instead of taking God's provision to his heart. Temptation comes when we are weakened. We can be weakened by our own sense of success, that it's all about us. But we also can be weakened by the tiredness of our own effort apart from the Lord. And this may speak to more of us in this room today. You know who you are. You are working, 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 working. Man, you burn the candle at both ends. You don't put in 40 hours. You put in 50 hours. You don't take a day off. Day off, that's for losers. You just go. The Sabbath, that whole thing about God saying to rest, oh, that's for wussies. You don't rest. You don't have time for the Sabbath because you're a self-made person, right? You get what you can take. That's why you bust, because you bust so you can get. 
And I don't care who you are, I don't care how much of a Superman you think you are, at some point, all of us hit the wall. You burn the candle at both ends, you just fill your life up with stuff, at some point, you hit the wall. And surprise, surprise, when you hit the wall, when you have exhausted your energy apart from the Lord, you are weak. And temptation has its day with you. Temptation takes you for a ride. And you may go, where's the Lord? You left the Lord miles ago when you went off on your own. You're by yourself. You've reached the end of yourself and all that's left is the temptation that's before you. And that's where all of a sudden you start coming up with reasons why it's okay. Sin is always a downward spiral that begins with a choice. Sin is always a downward spiral that begins with one conscious choice to cross the line, to give in to temptation. And that one conscious choice, unchecked, quickly results in a series of decisions that pull us farther away from God. God doesn't pull away from us. We pull ourselves farther away from God and we pull ourselves deeper into deception and pain. Jesus tells us this plainly in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, wrong behavior, sin, always begins with the choices of the heart. Long before you act out, it begins with that glance you shouldn't take. It begins with that unkind thought you shouldn't entertain. It begins with that unforgiving attitude that you forgive, refuse to let go of. My friends, we, we've, we've spent a little bit of time talking about how and why David fell and how and why we fall. We've talked about that word, that three-letter word sin, and it's time for a spiritual checkup. I don't know the last time you went for a physical or the, you know, or, you know, when you go for a physical, you remember that like two-page sheet that the doctor hands you that you have to check yes or no? Have you had this, 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 or this? And it's like overwhelming, right? How many of you gloss over and you're just like, no, 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 no. And then you get in there and the doctor actually starts to go through it and you're like, well, well yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, all right. We're doing a spiritual health checkup today. And I'm gonna tell you that right now, I'm gonna be throwing a lot of questions at you and you're gonna be tempted to just be like, No, 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 no. Don't do that. The Kairos card that in many ways is a spiritual health checkup every week might be for your help today because the questions I'm going to ask, some, you're going to hear them, not going to strike you at all. You're going to be like, yeah, okay. Others, the question I ask you, God is going to prick you. And just like God pricked David through Nathan, you're going to suddenly perk up and go, okay, wait a second. I need, to, I need to write that down. I need, to, I need to wrestle with that because seriously asking these questions and listening to the Spirit of God speak will open our eyes and challenge us much like David's encounter with Nathan did. So here we go, just a couple for now. <laughs> How's your heart? How's your heart for God? How's your relationship with God? That's a general question. Let me get more specific. Who or what are we pursuing in order to possess before our relationship with God? Who or what are we pursuing in order to possess before our relationship with God? Remember, what we pursue is what we possess. What you pursue is what you possess. Jesus put it even more, even more brilliantly. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. What are you seeking to pursue in order to possess before your relationship with God? To honestly answer that question, to honestly reflect on our pursuits and our possessions, sometimes we need to just think about the priorities in our life. We need to think about our priorities. Because like I said, pursuits and possessions aren't inherently bad in and of themselves. It's a question of where are they falling in our relationship with God? 
What are our priorities? So ask yourself, who or what preoccupies your focus and your attention? Who or what preoccupies your focus and your attention? What are you, who or what are you always thinking about? Always on your mind. Is it God? Who or what do you think about when nothing else is demanding your attention? Some of us are just so habitually wired that we just keep thinking about one thing or one person. But in those moments when you get a break, who or what do you think about when nothing else is demanding your attention? Beloved, who or what consumes your heart and mind more than God? Let's break it down even more. Who or what are you pursuing to provide you with what only God can give you? Who or what in your life are you pursuing to give you identity, to give you purpose and security? These are things only God can give you. Who or what in your life are you asking to define who you are? Who or what in your life are you asking to make you feel safe and secure? Who or what in your life are you seeking to give you purpose and meaning to your life? Identity, purpose, and security are things only God can give to you. If you are overworking, if I struck a nerve a little bit earlier, if you're that nonstop driving yourself into the ground kind of person, your life is filled with frantic activity and busyness, if that's you, stop and ask, why? Why are you living that way? What are you convinced you must have before or besides God in order to be fulfilled and significant? If you're just bursting at the seams with activity, if you're like, your calendar is just ridiculous, if you have no free time, if you can't rest, why? What are you convinced you have to have besides or before God in order to be fulfilled and significant? Maybe your busyness, maybe your activity is because you've lost, you've failed. What have you lost? Where have you failed so much that it's driving you, your loss and your failure is driving you more than your awareness of God's love for you? Beloved, sin doesn't just happen. It begins in the heart. So as you're asking these questions, it's like a pulse check. Ask yourself, how's our inner life? How's our inner life? What are you thinking about? What's going on in there, in here? What are your attitudes? What attitudes are you carrying around inside of you? Not the stuff that you spurt out when someone puts you on the spot and says how you're doing or when you're trying to play nice and act mature. I'm talking about what's going on in that place that you think no one else knows. God knows your thoughts and he knows the desires and attitudes of your heart. What are you thinking about? Sin is about choices. What temptations are you trying to face rather than running from? What conscious choices are you making to get deeper in rather than to get out? What unhealthy choices are you making right now in your life? What choices are you rationalizing, justifying, what lies are you telling yourself before you tell them to everyone else? What lies are you telling yourself? We need to wrestle with these questions. We need to take this spiritual health check because here's the thing. David's fall, as we see it here, also rebukes the lie that sin is a private matter. That's real popular today. You know what? If we embrace the word sin, everybody wants to say sin is a private matter. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but it's just between me and God. And therefore, our sins don't hurt anybody. You know what? It's just a little glance. It's just a little flirting. It's just a little indiscretion. It's just a little white lie. It's just a little joke. Come on. It's just a little indulgence. Nobody gets hurt. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
With sin, beloved, hear this this morning. With sin, someone always gets hurt. Someone always gets hurt. There is no such thing as private sin. Every private rebellion against God has public consequences for God's people. Every private rebellion against God, I don't care what it is, has public consequences for God's people. David's actions affect lots of people in this story. Of course, there's Uriah. He's dead, right? But let's not stop with Uriah. How about Bathsheba? I am amazed at how many people tell this story as if Bathsheba, you know, entered into this affair willingly with David. Really? Where do you get that from the text? You know what I read? The king of all Israel says, hey, I want you. And what are you going to say? No. Uriah is off on the battlefield. Bathsheba's by herself. I think Bathsheba's a victim of sexual abuse here. And what does she get for, for, because of David's lust? She loses her husband and she loses their child. She loses the child born out of her affair with David. Bathsheba's a victim of David's sin. Joab, Joab is David's general. Joab is David's general who is ordered essentially to murder one of his, his best men. And so Joab becomes an accomplice in David's cover-up. Joab is a victim of David's sin. And how about all those other men put in harm's way in order to ensure David's order would be carried out, that Uriah would perish on the front lines of battle? Because you think about this, right? The order is for Uriah to get sent to the front lines. It's going to seem really obvious what David is up to if Uriah gets sent, gets sent alone, right? Odds of him dying, I mean, well, of course he died. He was the only guy up there fighting. So, of course, he has to be sent with a bunch of men so it looks legit. Do you, take, do, you do you take where this goes? Those men die too. <laughs> so if you think about this, how about all the other men who are put in harm's way? How about all the other wives who become widows? How about all the other children in Israel who grow up without a father all because of David's sin? And then, and this isn't enough, then there's David's own sons watching and learning from their dad. And I am gonna spare you the dark details of 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 19, and it is dark, gruesome stuff. But let me just say this. David's sons watch very carefully, and they repeat his mistakes. What you see in 2 Samuel 13 through 19 is the reverberation of David, David's sin leading to sexual abuse, murder, scandal, betrayal, and ultimately the tragic and heartbreaking death of several of his children. Don't ever tell me there's such a thing as private sin. Don't ever tell yourself that what you do is just between you and God. It affects others. Every private rebellion against God has public consequences for God's people. But this is because, and this is what we don't understand, sin is systemic in nature. That's the way sin works. Sin isn't isolated. It takes root and it infects a variety of areas and relationships. We're, we're, we're not even aware, we're not even able to be conscious of how our sins impact each other, how they feed off of each other. We're not isolated. We're connected to each other. That's how God created us. And we're so clueless to this. We're like David, right? David in the midst of Nathan's story. Do you relate to this? David in the midst of Nathan's story. He, he gets so fired up. He's so ticked off, right? And just like David, as Nathan tells his story, we get so easily animated and outraged at the wrongs and injustices in this world. How many of you screamed at the radio this week or the television? How many of you call, how oh, these people, these idiots, how could they do that? My God, what's wrong with this world? How many of us, like David, it's just so obvious. We can be so quick to point out what's wrong with other people. But all of a sudden, when Scripture holds up that mirror, all of a sudden, when Jesus looks us in the eyes, 
Do we ever pause to think about how our choices, our decisions, our actions impact each other and shape this world we're living in? You're not on an island. We all have this tendency when something goes wrong to blame someone else. It's their fault. They did it. This and that. But we're always like, well, it's not me. Right? Do you get how crazy that is? The reality is not the fantasy we tell ourselves. The reality is like a pebble disturbing the surface of the water and creating ripple after ripple after ripple. We can't possibly comprehend the effects of our sin in influencing and impacting the lives of others. And we can't possibly comprehend how other people's sins influence and impact our own lives. That's the severity, the problem of sin. That's what we need to kind of sit in. And through David's story, we sit in it, right? And we sit in the reality of how and why we fall. But through David's example, we're not left there. Through David's example, we also can reflect on how we get back up. We've covered the first part. Let's cover the second. How do we get back up? How do we recover from heart failure? The first thing we learn from David's story is we can't recover on our own. Hear that. We can't recover on our own. David prior to Nathan showing up, you see this, is blind. David is blind. Whether he's intentionally blind, he's choosing not to see, or he's unintentionally blind. He tells himself the lie so long he starts to believe it. You know what that's like, right? I do that. Tell myself the lie long enough, I actually believe it's true. Whether David's intentionally blind or unintentionally blind, he can't see his heart condition. David is hopeless until God initiates his rescue. I want you to see this in what we just read. Once again, in the Old Testament, we witness the grace of God. Because God moves first. God comes forward and speaks through the prophet Nathan. And the thing is, God has to move first. Because only the Lord can break through David's ego, David's apathy, David's hard heart. David is dead without God's intervention. And my friends, so are we. Our recovery from heart failure begins by recognizing only God can save us. We cannot save ourselves. God initiates as the Lord always does. God initiates. Our Father cares enough to con confront. That is not a truth that I always like, but it is a truth about my Father that I love. Our Father always cares enough to confront. This is a recurring theme in the story, that the Lord wants to have an intimate relationship with each of us, and he will go out of his way to invite us back into that relationship. But here's the thing, as hard as God's word can be sometimes, God never brings us condemnation without offering us grace and healing. Hear that. God never brings us condemnation without offering us grace and healing. The whole point of Nathan's confrontation with David is not to punish him, but to restore him, to bring him back. By the grace of God and only by the grace of God is the possibility of David's redemption laid before him. And my friends, like David, the only way to get back up when we fall is to embrace this invitation to take the hand of forgiveness the Lord offers us. Once we're there, the first step in our part, the first step on our part in response to the Father's gracious initiative is called confession. You've heard that word in church. The first step on our part is to confess. Confession involves acknowledging the reality of our sin and its effects. In other words, confession means owning our stuff, owning what we have done, naming where we have fallen short, owning and claiming how our pursuits and possessions have gotten the better of us. It's coming clean. 
David's response to the Lord's revelation of his sin through the prophet Nathan is to declare. You heard it without any reservation. It's the last verse I read to you in this chapter. David's response to the Lord's revelation of his sin is to declare without any reservation, I have sinned against the Lord. We get one sentence here in 2 Samuel. If you want the full transcript of David's confession, turn to Psalm 51. The full transcript of David's confession is a prayer he writes called Psalm 51. And in that psalm, and right here in 2 Samuel, David doesn't try to blame Bathsheba. He doesn't try to shift the blame. He doesn't try to pin this on her. David doesn't make excuses about the enormous stresses and responsibilities of his job. You read Psalm 51 and you won't find one word of self-rationalization or justification. David faces his sin head on and calls it what it is. His sin. I have sinned against the Lord. David also recognizes sin is ultimately against the Lord. You know, so many of us, part of where we make sin less of a big deal, we make it so small, is we think that sin is about breaking God's laws. God made these laws. God made these rules. I sinned. I broke it. Now I have to go sit in the corner. No, it's much deeper than that. Sin isn't just a matter of breaking God's laws. Sin is a matter of breaking God's heart. Do you hear me, church? Sin is a matter of breaking God's heart. When we reject and rebel against God's will, we hurt his creation. We vandalize and abuse what the Father created out of love, and our Father takes it personally. And if this shocks us, it shouldn't. In loving us, in pursuing us, in seeking to save us, how could our Father not take it personally? It's only when you understand that sin isn't a matter of just breaking a rule. Sin is breaking God's heart. It's only when you get that that we begin to appreciate the severity and damage of sin in our lives and in this world. Truly confessing our sin is confronting and accepting how we have broken God's heart and it's therefore allowing our own heart to be broken as well. You read Psalm 51 and you can hear David's heartbreak. His confession in Psalm 51 is more than just, I'm sorry, I'll try to do better next time. Psalm 51, in Psalm 51, David confronts and mourns the damage he's done, the pain he's caused, and his pleas for forgiveness are heartfelt. My friends, I'm in this with you. I'm not apart from you. We all mess up. We all mess up. We often live, I do, we often live how we want rather than how God wants. We all sin. Intentionally or unintentionally, we all have blind spots when it comes to our sin, don't we? We can't see it. But our Father, in His grace, cares enough to confront. The Lord has His way of letting us know we have done wrong, we are off track. Have you experienced that voice of God? God has this way of calling us out so we see our failings of thought, word, and deed. But the question as we get back to our checkup this morning is are we owning our stuff? Are we owning our stuff? Are we admitting that we're wrong? Are we laying it out there? Or are we in our relationship with God and with others still all about excuses? Man, we got excuses. Are we still all about blaming others? It's not my fault, it's their fault. No, no, they did it first. Are we all about justifying? You don't understand. You don't get it. Are we about rationalizing? No, this totally makes sense. This works for me. It may not work for anybody else, but it works for me. What are you doing? When's the last time, if ever, when's the last time you cried out for forgiveness? 
David doesn't just say, forgive me. He doesn't just do some prayer on a slide on a screen. David cries out for forgiveness. When's the last time you cried out for forgiveness? Now hear me. When's the last time you cried out for forgiveness? Not because God's offering of mercy is in question. God's mercy, his forgiveness is there. He offers it. You're not crying out because somehow it's in jeopardy. When's the last time you cried out for forgiveness? Not because God's offering of mercy is in question, but you're crying out because you allow yourself to experience God's heartbreak over your sin. You allow yourself to experience God's heartbreak over your sin. Have you ever let God's heartbreak over sin break your heart? Break your heart towards the pain and suffering of this world because when you do, when you enter into that place, you no longer stand above another person and look down on them. You all of a sudden find yourself looking at them eye to eye and going, yep, I get it. Man, I know. We're here together. We're in this together. David's story doesn't stop there. David's story shows us something else that's very disturbing for many of us. David's story also shows us that true confession leads to understanding something. That true confession leads to understanding that receiving God's forgiveness does not negate the consequences of one's actions. David was forgiven by God. The text is clear on this. David was forgiven by God as we are all forgiven by God in Christ. But David still had to face the consequences of his sin. He remained king, but he lost the child conceived in adultery. Internal conflict sabotaged David's hopes for peace within his own family. For a brief time, David finds himself once again on the run, hiding in the wilderness for his life. He has to deal with sons who will do practically anything to become the next king and ultimately lose their lives in this reckless and shameless pursuit. David deals with the consequences of his sin, even though he is forgiven. And this is, this is shocking for some of us because some of us have been sold a bill of goods that that's not how it works with God. We all love stories with happy, perfect endings, right? And they all lived happily ever. We love those stories. And the story of the Bible ultimately promises this. We will, will, we will live all happily ever after. But until we get there, God's story doesn't deliver some Hollywood ending where actions don't have consequences and everything is just cleaned up with a wave of a magic wand. Forgiveness is real, and thanks be to God, the Lord's forgiveness is ours. But God's forgiveness does not ignore or sweep under the rug sin's consequences. Beloved, that's why there's a cross at the center of our faith and witness. And you get in here and you say, why is there a cross in the center of the room? Jesus took care of that. Why do, we keep, why do we keep looking at this thing? That's why. There is a cross at the center of our faith and witness. We look to the cross remembering Jesus hanging there for us to be reminded to never forget sin matters. Sin has consequences. Jesus forgives our sin. He covers its ultimate consequences. We're going to celebrate that on Good Friday. Jesus covers our bondage to sin. Jesus covers our separation from God. Jesus covers our separation from each other. Jesus conquers our inevitable death because of sin. But the effects of sin in our day-to-day -day lives, the abandonment, the betrayal, the abuse, the neglect, the pain and the suffering caused by our choices, we experience those consequences. God doesn't say, I forgive you, I, I, when he says, I forgive you, he removes the guilt and the shame, but he doesn't remove that we still have to work through the consequences. You see, accepting we must face and work through the consequences of our sin, even as we are forgiven, is what's known as repentance. 
Now, you've probably heard a different definition of repentance. And what I would say, it's not different, it's just incomplete. Repentance, you probably heard, means turning around, going a different way, going back in the Lord's direction. And this is true. But here's the full understanding of repentance. Repentance isn't just about changing our direction. Repentance is also about dealing with the effects of what we've done. We can be. We are forgiven for breaking the window. But the broken glass still has to be swept up and the window repaired. Repentance involves committing to the work of the cross, the Lord's rebuilding of what has been shattered. Notice in Psalm 51, David confesses his sin and in his repentance expects to die for it. Now hear me clearly on this. David isn't looking to die. David recognizes the gravity of his situation. Casting himself on the mercy of God, David prepares to face the consequences of owning his sin, of allowing God's Holy Spirit to reconcile and reconstruct what is broken. And if you look at David's life, it isn't easy and it isn't instantaneous. Rebuilding never is. Reconciliation takes time, but God is faithful. The Lord sustains and enables us to endure the work of his redemption, of writing and reconstructing what nobody can fix except God. Repentance releases the grace of God to become active in our hopeless situation. The same grace that forgives us, that enables us to confront and acknowledge our sin, is the same grace that empowers us to participate in God's work of reconciliation and reconstruction. See, here it is, friends. Many of us, this is why we're here, is we lived that bad life, we did all that bad stuff, and then we found Jesus, and now we're hiding in church. We're hiding in church, right? Because you, you turned around and you went in a different direction. Meanwhile, all that crap is still back there. And you come here every Sunday and you pray the prayer and you do your thing and you're like, oh, but I'm covered, I'm covered. You are, yes you are, but that stuff is still there. You still gotta make amends. You still gotta own your stuff. You still gotta be a part of God cleaning it up. And if you don't get that, then that's why, just this, here's how you know you haven't gotten it. If you find yourself continuing to confess and repent the same things over and over again, if you keep making the same messes over and over again, you don't really understand what confession and repentance is. If you just keep doing the same things to different people over and over again, pardon me, but you don't understand what confession and repentance is, the kind of work that God wants to do through you. That's why we can't hide in church. We don't hide in church and go, we're staying away from the big bad world because it's safe in here. We go out there so that we can share this offer of forgiveness, of grace that we've been talking about, but also so, we, so that we can participate in God's reconstruction, his rebuilding project. And in the process, we are a part of, that's part of the healing and the cleaning up of what God's doing in our own lives. David tells us this quite powerfully in Psalm 51. It's such an, a, a contrast to Saul, right? When David writes, the sacrifice God wants is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. That's why confession leads to repentance. So my friends, as we finish up our diagnostic this morning, I ask you, when you confess, are you taking the Lord's forgiveness for granted? When you confess, are you just taking the Lord's forgiveness for granted? Great, I did that. God forgives me, we're done here. Is repentance for you just turning around from your bad choices? But in the process, are you turning away from the consequences of your sin instead of facing them and learning from them? Are you seeking in the places where God is empowering you to make amends, to clean stuff up? Now, right now, you might be going, wait a second, wait a second, making amends, cleaning stuff up? This sounds a lot like workspace righteousness, like somehow we're earning our salvation, making ourselves right with God. Nope. Making amends, 
Cleaning stuff up doesn't save us or make us right with God. We make amends and we clean stuff up because it's the right thing to do as a follower of Jesus Christ. Man, I'm dying up here and it's not just because it's hot, you know? The good news, there's always good news. I tell you that because it's true. Despite David's fall and its consequences, his story ends on a hopeful note. And you might miss it because of the cloud that just overshadows the rest of 2 Samuel. But David's story, despite his fall and its consequences, ends on a hopeful note. God's gracious initiative, which leads David to confess and repent of his sin, ultimately redeems David's adulterous relationship with Bathsheba into a blessed marriage. One thing I want you to notice, you probably wouldn't have picked up on it, is prior to David's confession and repentance, Bathsheba isn't even mentioned by name. She's referred to again and again as Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife, kind of making the point, right? Uriah's wife. After David's response to the Lord, for the first time, she's referred to as his wife. And though they lost their first child, another son is born to them, a child you know, a child named Solomon. But here's the interesting part. They name their son Solomon, but God gives Solomon another name. And that name is Jedidiah. And Jedidiah means loved by God. So you see, as David's life comes to a close and Solomon prepares to take the throne, we are reminded powerfully, God's love, not our sin, has the final word in David's life. This is the gospel, not just for David. This is the good news for all the world through Jesus Christ. Even though we fall, we can get up. Even though our hearts fail, God's heart for us does not When, by the grace of God, we realize and confess the sin in our lives, when we confess and own our stuff, when we repent and face the consequences by looking to Christ on the cross, sin, our sin, our mistakes, our failures, our abuses, our guilt and our shame, sin no longer becomes the final word in our lives. Instead, through God's love, his forgiveness, his healing and his redemptive work, he creates a clean heart in us and gives us a new right and willing spirit to listen and follow the joyous pulse of our salvation that carries us from this life into our eternal one. Amen.